0: This is In Conversation, from Apple News Today. I'm Shmita Basu. Every weekend, we talk with the journalists behind the best stories on Apple News+. Plus. Today on In Conversation, we're talking with the writer Joshua Behrman about a new piece he's written with Rich Shapiro for New York Magazine in collaboration with Epic Magazine. It's an incredible, true story that follows a down-on-his-luck music promoter named Patrick Alaco Sr., who, through a series of very unfortunate events involving the rapper Nas and a short-tempered and powerful client, winds up trapped in a hotel in Angola, along with his drug-addicted son. It's sort of a bizarre, true-life buddy movie, where a lot of things go very wrong, but a couple of things go right, especially between the father and son, who are stuck together. The story is called Last Chance Hotel, and you can read it and listen to it exclusively on Apple News, where it'll be published in installments over the next three weeks. Behrman is no stranger to stories about people stuck in complicated situations. He also wrote the Wired story that became the basis of the movie Argo, about the rescue of American diplomats from Iran in 1979. I spoke with Behrman about Last Chance Hotel, how the Alakos got into this mess, and their various attempts to get out of it. Let's start by just talking about the the two people, the two main characters that we really get to know well over the course of the story. Uh, Let's start with the father, Patrick Mm -hmm. Alaco Mm -hmm. Sr. Uh, Tell us more about him. He's such an interesting character.
1: Well, Patrick Sr. is, he is quite a character. He's sort of this eternal optimist, His career has always been sort of these kind of self-made, either entrepreneurial ideas or working in sort of like political campaigns, things that are, you know, speculative. You're trying to put something together and see if it works out. And that eventually turned into a pretty successful music promotion business. Which itself is very speculative. You know, it's a risk-reward system of mm-hmm. of business. And He's a risk
0: seeker for sure.
1: He definitely is a risk seeker. And mm-hmm. he is very tolerant of risk, as they would say in an economics class, in a way that I personally have not. And so he was doing pretty well by that for a while. And then he hit, I guess, maybe a black swan of 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 sequential failures that put him in this position where his back was against the wall. I mean, he was bankrupt, you know, the, like at various points, the lights were off in the house. It was that type of thing. It was a pretty dire scenario.
0: Mm-hmm. And tell me a little bit more about his son. You know, what what's his deal at the very beginning of the story when we meet him?
1: So Patrick Jr., he's an only child, He and his father were very close when he was growing up. And then as he became a teenager, he sort of went through the typical teenage mode of drug experimentation, which then became atypical teenage drug life. And he got really pretty seriously into drugs. And he's a very lovable and likable person in general. He's very easy to talk to. People take a natural liking to him Mm. from all walks of life. This is kind of a feature of the story because that was a feature of him that came out in various ways. And so... He was pretty deep in it right as this has happened. This is the fall of 2011. He was homeless. He had been kicked out by his dad and his girlfriend had kicked him out. And so he was living on the street and he was kind of floating around. He was itinerant when his dad called him and said, hey, I got this idea. Let's go to Angola.
0: So tell me a little bit more about this scheme that Patrick Sr. has hatched to go to Luanda and put on this show. You talk about him being a risk seeker. Tell us about the risks involved.
1: In some way, these types of things are always risky. Uh, Even in the States, Patrick had put on a show where the act just didn't arrive. (laughs) Um,
0: Right, right. It can just fall through. Yeah, it can
1: just kind of fall through and you're sort of left holding the bag. It's all kind of speculative. You're dealing with music acts that are traveling or sometimes unreliable. And so there's a basic risk to the whole thing. Then on top of it, this was thrown together super fast, right? So it was like the way this came about is that Patrick senior had heard that there's this promoter in Angola who had already been with some very deep pockets putting on these big hip hop shows. And so he heard about this guy and he got in touch with him and said, hey, I heard you need a like a New Year's Eve act. He'd always put on a big New Year's Eve show. And the guy's like, yeah, I need one. He's like, OK, well, let me see what I can do. So then he starts quickly trying to get in touch with the managers of various hip hop artists in the States and to see who's available. OK, fine. Nas is available. Nas is available. How about Nas? Okay, sounds good. How much money? Okay, 300000 Okay, how much is that? You'd send it to me. I'll send it to Nas. Like he's throwing this together on the fly. This is just how these things come together, and it's happening very fast. This is like mid-December. So normally mm-hmm. you would be planning this like three months ahead of time. <laughs> right, this is within weeks. Yeah, this is Projects all within weeks. and then yeah. yeah, and then also then Rakinho, the guy's name is Rakinho, the the Angolan promoter. That's his nickname. Mm-hmm. And he, he said – somewhat sensibly, I need some collateral to wire you the money. So it was a little bit of a catch 22 because he didn't have collateral and he was bankrupt. This was meant to save him from bankruptcy. So that was not going to happen. And that's also why he decided to reach out to his son because he thought, well, maybe if I send Patrick Jr. there, he can kind of do the logistics, but he'll also secretly be the collateral. And so that's where Patrick's appetite for risk lies. Like when he gets on the plane to go to Angola himself, he follows Patrick Jr. a few days later. He doesn't know what's going to happen.
0: Yet This choice to send your son as collateral, to me that was one of the most revealing sort of character points that I could have gotten out of Patrick Sr. What did you think when you first learned that?
1: Well, I thought that was crazy, you know, at first, right? I'm like, there's some deep archetypal oddity to the story of the father and son who want to repair their relationship, but also they're willing to make these risks. And Patrick Jr. is willing. He's aware of what's going on. So it's not like he's being fooled or something. And in fact, he thought, well, maybe this is a chance. At first, he was like, you're out of your mind. This makes no sense. Then he thought, well, maybe this is a chance to turn things around and I can get sober. That was also part of the story. Patrick Sr., first of all, he thought it was going to work out. Because he's an optimist. For him, it was like, yeah, sure, it's a collateral because then you get the money back and then you're fine. So he didn't really appreciate the risk for what would go wrong. And then he thought, okay, Patrick will go down we'll get the money, he'll Mm -hmm. get sober, we'll come back together as father and son, and all will be well. So he had really built like this even bigger vision of the glorious success that this could turn into.
0: To back up for just a moment, something that feels really important to sort of establish here is also who this character was, the local concert promoter in Angola. You mentioned his name, Riquinho.
1: That is an important factor of the story, which is that, and Patrick... Sr. was aware of this because everybody in the promotional circuit was, that Rakino was sort of a tough customer. Ja Rule and <laughs> Fed Joe and DMX and other rappers who had gone there on this circuit to go, you know, make some quick, easy money, uh, do this show in Luanda, you know, on your way to Johannesburg or wherever, except that in several cases, Rakino basically tried to detain the artists to get them to do more shows. I think Ja Rule and Fat Joe like fled to the embassy, similar to the Ilocos. They get to the embassy because Riquinho had their passports and they had to get new passports and get out of there. And so to be fair to Riquinho, several artists had also taken his money and then not shown up and then... He was screwed. So
0: he had been burned, too. He had been burned, yeah,
1: several times. And he had no real recourse because he's in Angola to try to, like, sue the people to get the money back or something. And so he was nationally very protective. Actually, there's another promoter who said that he was roughed up by Riquinho. It was rumored to be that bad at times. And Patrick Sr. knew all this and was like, yeah, but that's just when something goes wrong. And nothing's going to go wrong here.
0: Being the optimist. Yeah. Patrick Sr. strikes me as this very American kind of character. And we've seen this character and sort of the downfall of this type of character in so many real life Mm storylines. I mean, to be honest, I got like fire festival vibes when I was reading some of this story, but it feels almost like Maybe inverse is the wrong word. It's like it's the opposite. It is a little bit of the opposite of the fire festival, right? It's like a in
1: terms of motivation. Yes,
0: in terms of motivation, actually, speak more to motivation because I think what's hard to wrap your mind around is whether Patrick Senior is motivated by the money and the idea of pulling himself out of the hole, Mm -hmm. or by something else. That's maybe a little more pure-seeming, you know, yeah. mending his relationship with his son or, or even his own reputation.
1: Yeah. I think it was all of those things. It took me a little bit of time to appreciate that because I kind of thought that when he said that, that that was like an additional extra layer of story that he was spinning to convince his son and maybe himself. And so once I realized that and that these motivations were equally weighted and mixed up together. It was hard to be critical in the way that you would if you just think, well, it's kind of a cynical ploy to like, get some money. And that's not what it is.
0: It feels like you're drawn to characters that are like this. And also, you you wrote the story that became Argo, sort of similarly a tale of people trapped in a country, trying to get out coming up with this incredible scheme. What draws you to stories like this? Do you see a similar through line? Because I certainly do.
1: I think if you looked at all the stories, they're all sort of about very different kinds of people. But the thing that is similar, I suppose, in all of them is that I guess I'm drawn to stories where these extraordinary things happen to ordinary people, I guess. I mean, people often... Ask if I have a beat and I never have a good answer. I'm like, I don't know. I just kind of like crazy stories. It's sort of like my editor once called it like I'm always pitching in dude, no way (laughs) stories. Um,
0: (laughs) That's a good that's a good description for a beat. Yeah. Last question for you. In all these dude, no way stories, in your words, the stories about fantastic, unbelievable things that happen. What do you want people who experience it, the viewer, the reader to understand from that?
1: Well, I think that is a good question because that's really the question, right? It's sort of like, well, what is the purpose of art in general, (laughs) Um, which is, I think, especially this form is to just create connection between people. So to be able to inhabit somebody else's life and experience and see what they go through and understand how that relates to you and your ethics and values and judgments and, you know, appreciation of the world. And so this type of storytelling is really meant to be an empathy delivery (laughs) mechanism. These are all stories that allow you to have an expanded view of the world and other people.
0: Josh Behrman, what a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And now listen to part one of Last Chance Hotel.
2: Last Chance Hotel, Part 1. This is the first installment of a special four-part original series. A bankrupt music promoter wanted a payday. His detoxing son needed a fresh start. But when their plan for an epic Nas concert in Angola went awry, they found themselves trapped thousands of miles from home. Written by Joshua Bearman and Rich Shapiro for New York Magazine. Published in partnership with Epic Magazine narrated by Dion graham please be advised this article contains adult language and discussion of drug use and suicide prologue patrick alaco jr was drunk and confused sprinting through the back alleys of luanda angola a place he barely knew he'd been out partying with some new friends osvaldo and erickson at club mega bingo a nightclub of choice among the lucky Angolan youth who had real money to spend. Patrick Jr. had shared late nights out with these guys before and always had a good time. The place was big, with flashing lights and a heaving dance floor overlooked by a DJ playing hip-hop, reggaeton, and kizomba, a local genre of romantic rhythms. Patrick Jr. liked hanging out with his new circle. He and Erickson had become particularly close. But on this night, something had gone wrong. The way Patrick Jr. remembers it, there was a guy he'd never seen before, Danilo, who was massively built, bald, and humorless. In the bar, Patrick Jr. had gotten pretty well lubricated, but people kept insisting on more drinks. Have another. I'm good right now, but you must. I'm all right, really. Just one more, my friend. Patrick Jr. noticed that Danilo was glaring and getting uncomfortably close, behind him, next to him, towering over him. The night went from fun, to a little weird, to alarming, and Patrick Jr. got nervous and left through a rear door. There, he got into a scuffle with security, who picked him up by the belt and tossed him out like it was an Old West saloon. His shirt was torn, so Patrick Jr. shook it off and started walking. Then he noticed Danilo following with Osvaldo in tow. Patrick Jr. heard them running, and before he knew it, he was running too. He kept turning corners, trying to lose his pursuers in the warren of small, dark streets. He cut left, then left again. Dead end. Panicked, he looked around and saw a small opening in the fence. Beyond, it was pitch dark. He climbed through. A few steps in, Patrick's feet went out from under him, and he plunged through a broken grate into a sewer. Or maybe a drainage channel. He didn't want to think about the precise source of the water as he lowered himself to his chin hiding from Danilo's approach, his keys jangling as he got closer, calling to Patrick Jr. that he would find him. Submerged in the dark, Patrick Jr. was well concealed when Danilo and Osvaldo walked right by. He waited and listened for the sound of Danilo's keys to recede. Neck deep in filthy water, he considered his situation. A few months earlier, he had been a homeless heroin addict in New Jersey, His father, a broke music promoter, had convinced him they could turn their lives around by arranging a complicated but lucrative hip-hop concert on New Year's Eve in Angola. It was more complicated than they'd imagined. Things went awry. The authorities took their passports, and now they were on the hook for a lot of money. The guy they owed was a local promoter known for his clout and coercion. There were stories about his detaining or extorting other hip-hop artists, from Fat Joe to Ja Rule and DMX. The Alakos couldn't leave until they paid back this guy's money, which they didn't have. They had been stuck in Angola for weeks, and now Patrick Jr. was hiding in a sewer, completely lost and nearly naked. When it was finally quiet and he hoisted himself out of the water, his pants caught on something and slipped off, along with his shoes. He managed to grab his shoes, but his pants were gone, along with his wallet, phone, and keys. So Patrick Jr. was wearing only wet sneakers and underwear as he climbed up the wall of the dead end and started walking across the sheet metal roofs, looking for a way out. He could hear people below talking in their houses, and he could hear Osvaldo and Danilo every so often in the distance. It was slow going on the roofs, which were thin and clanged easily. Patrick Jr. treaded carefully, searching for beams, until a misstep sent him crashing right through a ceiling. There was immediate chaos. He had landed in someone's closet at 4.30 in the morning in his flannel boxers. A father jumped out of bed, also in his underwear. The entire household was awake instantly, yelling. I'm sorry about your roof, Patrick Jr. said, dazed but uninjured. There were children crying. There was an agitated grandmother. Patrick Jr. tried to keep everyone's voices down and offered to pay for repairs. Get out, the father yelled, dragging Patrick Jr. to the door, where Danilo and Osvaldo were waiting. Danilo knocked Patrick Jr. to the ground. I knew we'd find you, he said. Patrick Jr. was still trying to understand what was even happening. Osvaldo had been his friend. They'd gone to see movies, spent the day at the beach on Ilia do Cabo. How much are you worth to your father? Danilo said. Get us money or you're never going home. Now Patrick Jr. got it. I'm already captive here, he thought. And now, a shakedown? Patrick Jr. sensed that this was Danilo's idea and couldn't tell if Osvaldo was in on it, going along in the moment or maybe even trying to help. Either way, Patrick Jr. felt betrayed. I thought we were brothers, he said to Osvaldo. Danilo wrapped his belt around Patrick's arm to drag him along. Patrick Jr. was still shirtless, so Danilo put his vest on him, which felt like an odd touch. Tell your father we want a million dollars, Danilo said. But Osvaldo knew his father didn't have that much money. So as Patrick Jr. was being paraded in his underwear and Danilo's vest, he listened to them arguing about the ransom. What about half a million? I told you they don't have that. Soon, Danilo's demand was $10,000. Patrick Jr., both amused and annoyed that Danilo came down so fast on his price, explained that his father didn't even have that much. "'Fuck you,' Danilo said. "'Get us that money.' Danilo dragged Patrick Jr. along the street. "'You're never going home unless I get that money,' Danilo said. Then Patrick Jr. saw that they were near the U.S. Embassy— He knew it well from the times he and his father had been there, hoping American officials could intervene on their behalf and get them out of the country. He knew there were Marines there. Patrick Jr. went limp, using all his dead weight to drag Danilo down with him while yelling, Help! Soon, they were surrounded by embassy guards. The Americans took Patrick Jr. to the embassy's security booth, where he sat in his underwear and Danilo's vest. He didn't recognize any of the guards on this shift, They tried to figure out the commotion. What happened? Where to begin? He started to explain, but the way Patrick Jr. wound up there, scratched and bruised, was a misadventure full of so much bizarre detail, folly, and general confusion, it sounded like a farce. The guards just needed the basics. Who are you? One asked. My name is Patrick Alaco Jr., he said. My father is Patrick Alaco Sr., and we are trapped in Angola. That was Last Chance Hotel, Part 1, written by Joshua Behrman and Rich Shapiro for New York Magazine.
0: Part 2 is available now for Apple News Plus subscribers. iPhone users can subscribe in the Apple News app.